If you walk down Cromwell Street in Collingwood, Melbourne, it feels like you're walking past light industrial brick facade after light industrial brick facade. There's a stream of roller doors that gives you the sense that you're in a loading bay for a printing shop. But if you go down far enough, there is one building that stands out. It's enormous. Um, I, I just don't think I expected something that huge. So the front of the building is actually an old manor house. Um, I think it was built in the 1800s or maybe the early 1900s, but it's this beautiful old manor house that was actually um, the largest brothel in Collingwood. And they've retained the entire facade and I think parts of the side of the building as well, but um, a lot of the inside has been gutted. What does what the front of a brothel look like? Just a, just, you would never guess it's a brothel. You would never, it's a beautiful old manor house. Right now, as we record, the old manor house looks like the middle of a construction site because super excitedly, it's the site of Street's newest and biggest venture. Their brand new site, their home street home. There's a cafe, there's a bakery, there's a roaster, there's all their offices, there's training spaces. It's the dream site that Street's always wanted to build. And it's hard to understand just how big the site is. How Street ended up with this site is the stuff of non-profit fairy tales. Someone reads a media piece, calls them up, gets to know them, and then decides to buy them a $2.5 million property. Okay, I'm sure it was a little bit more complicated than that, but that actually happened. Here's Ian from Street. We were fortunate enough to have someone buy the property and gift us use of the property. So that's $2.5 million property that that we're able to use for the next 50 years for $5 a year. So that's the first big win and that came purely from a media story. Um, and the gentleman read that story and engaged with us the next week and has been our major backer and, uh, and supporter since. Yep. Now we could create a whole episode about that, but that's not what we're gonna talk about. We're gonna talk about what happened next. As it turns out, getting gifted the use of a site for 50 years is great, but then there's a whole heap of other expenses. When they first got the site, the whole piece was still set up as a brothel. It was like they were getting ready for a night of action, and then everyone just hurriedly had to leave, leaving their leather, their poles, and everything else you'd imagine in a brothel right there in place. So Street had to knock down stuff, build new stuff, make sure other stuff stood up, which is all expensive. And so they managed to fundraise $1.5 million in grants from trusts and foundations and raise another $2.5 million in debt from NAB and Social Ventures Australia, making the grand total somewhere near $4 million. Now Street wants to run a new crowdfunding campaign to raise $100,000 for the final stage of the site, which, well, is kind of hard, as Ian so eloquently puts it. A lot of people may well assume, well, gosh, they've got the land, They've got the loan, they've built the place, they really don't need the money. So how do you sell a $100,000 campaign for a $4 million site? Today on episode two of the Home Street Home podcast, we delve into exactly that question as we follow Street trying to figure it out. I'm Prashant from Chuff.org. If you haven't listened to episode one of this podcast series, head to chuff.org slash podcast and check it out. Otherwise, stay tuned. Street's been thinking about this second crowdfunding campaign for a long time. Remember, their last one was four years ago. We've known we're going to do a campaign for probably a year and a half. So we always said right near the very end of the build pro, you know, project, 
Um, we want to find a way that we can raise, you know, last little bit of money, but but also just let everyone know that, you know, hey, after years and years and years of hearing about this thing, um, it's finally here. Of course, things get in the way. Money takes longer to raise than you think it's going to. But in the early January, Street seconded in Naomi Barson, who you heard at the top of the episode, to help them run the campaign. Unlike the first campaign, was very clear what the money was going to build. This one was a lot more complicated because, well, they could have chosen anything. They needed money for vans, they needed money for the bakery, they needed money for programs, for the fit-out, for the cafe. The list was endless. We're blessed that we've got many, many options as yeah. to ways we could take that, be it bakery, be it focusing on trainees, be it impact, whatever it was. And it was really just nutting out what's the one core idea we want to hinge this story on and the rest will fall out from there. The quest was on to find that one story. And there was a lot to choose from. Step one, though, was deciding whether they should be selling the high-level vision, something like this. Conscious consumerism, so the concept of changing lives through meals, which is core to street. A fair go for all, highlighting that some people, through no fault of their own, start on the back foot and street's here to give them a fair go at education, a career, a life. Um, Looking at hopelessness and youth homelessness. um, Compassion, so again, looking at poverty and disadvantage and something um, that street can have have a... has shot at remedying. Or should they be selling the practical laundry list of what the money was going to buy? You know, I looked through the entire construction activity and thought, you know, what are, maybe it could have been the solar panels, maybe it could be this, maybe it could be that. Um, so we went through those things. And, I, you know, I've listed all, uh, in general terms, all uh, things that we need to get it up and running. And there's $100,000 or more. It could have been the two vehicles that we need. We need two second-hand delivery vehicles, one refrigerated and one not, so it can deliver coffee and catering and bread and those sorts of things. Anyone who's ever pitched a social good project knows this dilemma. Donors may say they want to know exactly what their money is buying, but do they actually want to know line item by line item? Or do they want to be part of creating this bigger vision of what those things actually sum up to create? The big picture vision camp normally argues that people want the emotional engagement, that sense of connection that a laundry list just doesn't provide. And if you want the organisation to create that vision, the best way is just to let them do it. And I feel like that pisses me off in general about philanthropy, that donors want to say, well, here's some money and I'd like you to do this with it, rather than saying, you know what, Charity, you do great work here's some money and I trust you to make a good decision about what to do with it because you know much better than I do how to use that money effectively. And I feel like that, for people to genuinely give and genuinely be philanthropic, unless they're involved in the sector, they should just trust the charities to get on with their work. It's like when you buy shares in a company, I guess you get a bit of a say, but you kind of trust the way the CEO's guiding the ship and you trust the board and you hopefully trust the decisions they're making, that's why you invest. The other camp, the show me the budget people, argue that people want transparency and you have to give it to them. You have to show them what their money is going towards. I'm more the practical side. I want people to know that, you know, what we're doing here, the money's going to go directly to really purchasing and building some things which are really important. For the record, I think this tension's a good thing to have in an organisation. Unsurprisingly, donors need both for slightly different reasons. Donors get inspired by the big vision that you're going to do something bold. They want to be part of something aspirational. That's why new shiny things sell better than things that are derivative or something that they've already seen before. 
And probably more importantly, I'm way more likely to tell my friends about something big and bold and exciting than I am about something unambitious and dull. Once you've got the vision in place, the line-by-line -line budget level transparency is great to establish credibility. It says to people, hey, we've thought about this. We know we can actually achieve what we're saying. In fact, we're so confident that we can achieve it that we're going to tell you exactly what the money is going to be spent on. And if I can see that line between what you're spending money on and achieving that big, bold vision, then everyone's happy. So, big, bold vision to inspire everyone, then line-by-line -line item to add credibility. To get to that line-by-line, -line, though, you have to start with the big vision. And the question of how do you get there? Well, it turns out everyone seems to have a different approach. There's the start broad with as many ideas as possible approach. So when I go into meetings, I come up with a whole bunch of ideas just to be devil's advocate, some of them, but just to present as many options, that's clearly not exhaustive, but to pr prompt the discussion and debate around what feels right and what doesn't feel right. So yeah, again, just playing with a lot of copy. Uh, there was Help Street build a home. There's no place like home. We're moving to Cromwell Street. That's crap, isn't it? and help us build Cromwell Street, as in S-T-R-E-A-T. And then there's the deep dive into one concept approach. Basically, the thinking is, it's really hard to have a real response to multiple high-level concepts. They all sound good. You get a much better understanding of what your gut instinctively likes and dislikes by deep diving into one concept and seeing how you react. One of the deep dives that Street took was on this Bake a Difference concept. The bakery was the new shiny thing that Street was doing. It's never done it before. And because people like funding shiny new things, it kind of seemed logical. While the concept could have worked, by deep diving into it, Street's collective gut felt a bit uncomfortable about it. Here's Beck again. So all of that, I think, could have really worked. Um, but it's only one part of, you know, it's one-fifth of that new big amazing building. Um, so we didn't want you to, to feel like actually, you know, it's one thing and then you turn up on site and you were just expecting a bakery and then there's kind of surprise. <laughs> um, so trying to make sure it, it, it was bigger than any one part. To me, it was focusing on the bricks and mortar element of what we're doing rather than the emotional themes about what a home encompasses. So belonging and safety and and um, somewhere that provides community. I didn't feel that a bakery was broad enough to include all of that. And, and I, don't get me wrong, like I feel like it could have worked. Like it was more, let's, let's move down this other path and see if we come up with something else that resonates more. It was more of a, you know what, that doesn't feel really right right now. Let's explore this home idea a bit more. If we get back there, great. If not, let's see where else we get to. After two long workshops over a good fortnight of debates, the team started to coalesce around a vision. Yeah, we probably threw around two or three or maybe even four concepts. I don't, we just, we started throwing them around in, in meetings and just said, well, what about this? And what about if we did that? And, you know, just keeping the ideas really open. But I don't, and I don't even know where the idea of kind of a housewarming came from. I'm, I'm not quite sure what it was about that particular idea that had just kind of stuck in my mind. But there's something, no matter how many times we kind of think of new ideas, 
in my mind, I always come back to what, what our young people don't have. You know, they have, a, they have an absolute lack of somewhere that's safe and they belong and, and, and somewhere, yeah, that sense of belonging. So even what I didn't want is I didn't want to do a campaign that was kind of cute and had a cute theme around it. We were missing an opportunity if we didn't give people a chance to belong as part of the very process of the campaign. It was actually Beck that came up with Home Street Home. She um, illustrated it on the board, and Beck's very creative in his forever drawing, but she illustrated it as a home and then street, the word, and then home. And talking about our trainees come from a home that's generally not somewhere they feel safe or belong or particularly want to be. They come to street in the middle of their day and spend their day training with us, and, um, and that's where they've actually, for the first time in their lives, felt like they have that sense of community and support and love and all that great stuff and then they go home at the end of the day. So it was almost this, this street bookended by homes. Once they had agreed on Home Street Home as their overarching vision, things started to fall into place. They ordered coffee cups at the Home Street Home branding. They created a pitch about how Street was creating a new home and recorded a vi- video to match. Then came the perks. Now the perks in a crowdfunding campaign are normally seen as auxiliary, an additional way for donors to give to the campaign. You might get a t-shirt if you donate $25 or get my name on a part of the project for $500. What struck me when I was listening to Ian and Beck though, when they were talking about the perks, was that for them, the campaign was in many ways defined by the perks. The campaign was, wasn't just about asking for money. It was also about telling customers that their new site was there and training those customers to be, well, customers. Here's Beck. We're trying to get people across into that new site. So it's a way about kind of priming a customer base and getting them enthused about this new project. So so even though, you know, when they when the campaign comes to an end, it won't be, you know, the following day they can walk straight into that site and, and you know, buy something from there. But it won't be too long after. If you remember back to their previous campaign, Ian was trying to do the same thing. One of the main reasons I wanted to run the crowdfunding campaign was to start the customer behaviours that we really wanted. Up until then, Street had been a couple of mobile carts and you'd go up to Federation Square or you know Melbourne Central or Melbourne Union buy a coffee from us. This was the first time you could actually go to a cafe, have a meal, take coffee home, you know, start to get some catering. I wanted people to start you know, purchasing in a way um, that our business was in, in the way that our business was heading. So we started some of those behaviours which which you know continue on now. By framing around creating more customers for their sites, Street wasn't just tapping into people's spending purse instead of their philanthropic one. They were also taking a much longer term view about where the value of the campaign is. They were hooking people in via the campaign, not just for the money they get today, but the hundreds of coffees someone will buy in the future. There was one more thing that was really important to Beck. This, I should say, is probably my favourite 30 seconds of interview across the entire podcast series. It was worth listening to this entire podcast just to hear this bit. And I think it captures a secret why some campaigns succeed online and others don't. Ready? Here we go. I, I hate earnestness. <laughs> I really, really hate it. You know, if... 
If the only way we ever got you to become involved in something was just to make you feel so goddamn guilty about living in a house or having your own home, like that would be crazy. So I want you to feel, I want you to feel so positive about being part of this campaign that it's something that you look forward to or it's fun or it can give you a laugh it's not just it's not just this dry topic that's going to make you feel like the world's about to end and there's nothing you can do about it actually there's a heap of things that you can do to to help us stop homelessness and we can have a heap of fun along the way as well that's the secret to a great campaign make stopping homelessness fun